Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now continuing with Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, and I think more accurately expressed, actually, that celebrates the fulfillment, the realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, we are always in a very special time of the year, frankly, with the church calendar. But uh, what I'm focusing on today is that tomorrow on the contemporary church calendar is Corpus Christi, the feast, uh, the feast that celebrates the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ in the Eucharist, the feast that celebrates the Eucharist, the feast that celebrates the ultimate gift that God gave to man that he left behind after he ascended into heaven to nourish us in our journey through this life on the way to the promised land, the true Jerusalem. And in fact, if for those of us who celebrate according to the old calendar, the Tridentine calendar, Corpus Christi was just two days ago. Um, it used to be on the Thursday, a week and a half after Pentecost. And then more recently, it was moved to the following Sunday to enable more people to celebrate it at the Sunday Mass than might have gone to the Thursday celebration. So anyway, so today's show is going to be dedicated to Corpus Christi, to the Eucharist, to the body of Christ that we are able to receive every day if we so wish at the Holy Catholic Mass. And uh, But before I skate ahead to that, let me just make a short comment and say it's also First Saturday. So I certainly encourage everyone to make the First Saturday devotion, if at all possible. But that being said, let's go on to the main theme, which is Corpus Christi. Now, the Eucharist, almost everything in the Catholic Church, has a tremendous connection to the... Um, the uh, foreshadowing of the same thing in Judaism, but the Eucharist is one of the most dramatic such examples. So to begin this show, I'm going to read a short passage from what's known as the Bread of Life Discourse, where Jesus talks about the Bread of Life, talks about the Eucharist. It takes place in Capernaum, the town where, the, uh, where, where Peter lived, and this, which was the center of Jesus' ministry for his active ministry in Galilee for those years. And um, he actually gave the following teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. If anyone ever has the privilege of making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, you can actually visit that synagogue. Capernaum is, is, uh, has kind of um, become an archaeological site because most all of the buildings have fallen down, but it's been reconstructed, and they reconstructed part of the synagogue. And one can actually sit in the very place where the listeners heard this Bread of Life discourse. So, without further ado, let me read the uh, part of the Bread of Life discourse, which is, of course, about the Eucharist, about the body of Jesus in the Eucharist. And I will talk a little bit about what it has to do with Judaism. And then I will go on, um, as time allows, 
to uh, describe the witness testimony of a Jew who became a Catholic priest and monk that who was um, converted through the Eucharist and who dedicated his ministry and his life to the Eucharist and actually was a martyr to the sacraments. Uh, that's Father Herman Cohen. So that is going to be probably the second, I don't want to say the second half of the show, the second part of the show. So the Bread of Life Discourse. Now, Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum. He is being grilled by the Jews, given a little bit of a hard time. And uh, I will pick up uh, John 6, verse 30. So the Jews said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. For um, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, whoops, excuse me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Many of the disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Um, after this, many of the disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. So, we see a lot here. First of all, um, I, 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 I do not like to um, engage in Catholic, Protestant uh, um, apologetics, you know, polemics, but I will point out 
that here Jesus is introducing the concept of the Eucharist, and he's saying very literally, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will be raised up on the last day. And what happens? Many of the disciples turn away and stop following Jesus because, as they said, this is a hard saying. Now, I hope that none of us make that mistake. In other words, you can see a parallel between the disciples who walked away from Jesus because he told them they had to drink his blood and eat his flesh, and the tragedy of our separated Christian brethren who do not participate in the Mass, who do not drink his blood and eat his flesh, because it's hard to believe that the Mass is really what the Catholic Church says it is, and the Eucharist is really what the Catholic Church says it is. But I will point out that it's not the Catholic Church that says the Eucharist is really the body and blood of Christ. It is Jesus who says it's really the body and blood of Christ. And just as our separated Protestant brethren may have walked away from the church because this was a hard saying, so many of Jesus' own disciples walked away because this is a hard saying. However, it does not make it any less true. It didn't make it any less true for those disciples 2,000 years ago, and it doesn't make it any less true for those disciples of Jesus today, who, however much they may love Jesus, and however much they may have invited Jesus into their heart and be uh, living for Jesus, they are not following his commandment to eat his flesh and drink his blood and have the eternal life within them that that brings. However, I will shift gears now. I had to get that in, obviously, because... um, basically because the business we're all in is is evangelization and bringing people as close to God as possible and bringing people as much assurance of um, a very happy eternity in heaven as possible. And here Jesus, in his own words, are saying that if you really want the happy eternity, as he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That certainly sounds like a pretty good future. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. So he's clearly talking about the Eucharist, and and, um, by the way, If anybody out there is questioning what I'm saying, just look at John chapter 6, verses 29 to the end of the chapter at 71, and you'll find that every word that I said is in there, is actually word for word in the New Testament, um, as Jesus said it. So, and if anyone would like to argue, uh, by the way, this is a live call-in program, And so if anyone does want to argue, you're welcome to. You can simply call in. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. 
But as I was saying, if anyone wishes to argue and say Jesus was speaking symbolically, he didn't mean it literally, I will point out that when his very own disciples left him, because this was a hard saying, Jesus didn't call out after them, no, 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 come back, you don't understand, I was speaking metaphorically, I was speaking symbolically, you're not to take this literally, relax, stay with me. He didn't. He let them go because he wasn't speaking symbolically, he wasn't speaking figuratively or or, um, metaphorically. He was speaking literally true, and he was describing the Eucharist, which was after the birth uh, the church was born on pentecost after jesus ascended into heaven and left behind christianity in the church he le- was describing the eucharist which was to be the central sacrament the central sacrament of christianity the central sacrament of the church and what a tragedy it is that many christians who who love jesus with their whole heart and mind and soul are depriving themselves of the central mechanism that Jesus left behind in the church to bring us closer to him. Okay, now what's this all have to do with Judaism? Well, note that the entire the entire structure of this uh, Bread of Life discourse it revolves around the manna in the wilderness. Uh, you all know the story that the Jews, after they escaped from Egypt, traveled through the wilderness for 40 years on the way to the promised land and they had no food to eat and God gave them the miraculous bread from heaven, the manna in the wilderness to sustain them on that journey. Uh, In fact, what precipitates the bread of life discourse is that the Jews were saying, look, show us a miracle, show us a sign. Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. That's how we knew that he was really from God. What sign do you do? And, um, Jesus then goes into the bread of life discourse saying that basically the man in the wilderness was only a picture of the true miraculous bread from heaven, which was his flesh, which he would give us to eat. And as the man in the wilderness enabled the Jews to survive in their 40 years wandering through the desert on the way to the promised land, it was a picture of the true manna from heaven, the Eucharist, which enables the Christian to survive in their wandering through the desert, the desert being this life, this veil of tears, on the way to the true promised land, not the earthly Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. So this this, uh, teaching of Jesus is extremely relevant also for seeing the... Well, one could say the reflection of the Old Testament in the New Testament and in Christianity, but more accurately, one could say, the prefigurement, the foreshadowing of the fulfillment of salvation through Jesus in the pictures that God gave us through the events in the life of the Jews in the Old Testament. Okay, that was all supposed to be simply a short introduction. Um, I guess nothing is short with me. Anyway, uh, you know those those uh, radios and, and um, laptops all have on-off switches, so don't blame me if you're still listening. Now, this is a live call-in show. If you wish to call in, the number is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. 
And um, I am very grateful for non-Catholic listeners. So, as I said before, if um, there are non-Catholic listeners who are a little bit confused or a little bit um, disbelieving or, or, or critical of this view of the centrality of the Eucharist and the Eucharist being the true presence of Christ then you're more than welcome to call in. I, I may or may not be up to your your questions, but I'm certainly happy to give it a shot. However, um, unless and until that happens, or someone calls in on some other ground, um, uh, my plan was to go on discussing, or telling the witness testimony, really, of one of my uh, personal heroes. Um, I guess I have this this pantheon of heroes who are Jews who entered the Catholic Church with a passion for bringing their co-religionists into post-Messianic Judaism, bringing their religious family, excuse me, their Jewish family, their Jewish friends, their Jewish community into the, it's not politically correct to say, but the true Judaism, which is the Catholic Church. Because, of course, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and he transformed the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. He transformed Judaism into the Catholic Church. So it is, in fact, the Catholic Church, which today in 2021 is the true form of Judaism, whereas the Judaism which the Jewish community follows and celebrates is a continuation of pre-Messianic Judaism, which, since the Messiah has come, is clearly in a, I can't think of a sufficiently nice word, but a defective state, an incomplete state, an erroneous state, one of those words. But again, that's not a criticism of you know, frankly, it's not a criticism of Jews who don't realize Jesus is the Messiah. It should be a criticism of us, of Catholics and Christians who do realize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and do not evangelize our Jewish brethren to whom we owe the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, to whom we owe Christianity, to whom we owe our Lord and Savior and Master and Comforter, Jesus. I mean, if, if, if they don't know that Jesus is the Messiah, is it their fault or is it our fault? Something to go home and think about, so to speak. Anyway, so Herman Cohen was definitely one of those Jews who entered the Catholic Church and um, devoted his, his um, life to the sacraments, to um, celebrating the Eucharist and promoting the Eucharist and promoting Eucharistic adoration and also uh, evangelizing, also evangelizing uh, both fallen away Catholics and non-Catholics and Jews. So I'll just go into his story now. Uh, he was born in 1821, died in 1871. So we're talking about the middle of the 19th century. And um, I, you know, I will, I will read. I, I wrote a book called um, "Honey from the Rock: Sixteen Jews Find the Sweetness of Christ." And I will, I think, read the chapter in the, from that book on Herman Cohen. And perhaps I will go off on tangents and discuss it more off to the side when I get to various points. 
but um, I will I will basically start with the text as a kind of uh, skeleton for what I'm going to say. So here goes. Father Herman Cohen, OCD, that's Carmelite, Apostle of the Blessed Sacrament. Reading from Honey from the Rock. The future Father Augustine Marie of the Most Blessed Sacrament, OCD, was born Herman Cohen on November 10, 1821, to a wealthy Jewish family in Hamburg, Germany. His father, a wealthy and prominent Jewish banker, was active in the local Jewish community, but subscribed to a modern liberal form of Judaism, which had let go of traditional Jewish piety and practices, essentially like conventional reform conservative uh, reform Judaism in the United States today. As a young child, Herman had a pious nature and enjoyed prayer and going to synagogue. Yet even at that early age, he felt a certain emptiness at the center of Jewish observance. He was extremely intelligent and shone in all of his school subjects of Latin, French, and the other subjects, but that was nothing compared to his musical genius. At the age of four, he begged to be taught to play the piano. By six, he was playing all of the then popular opera tunes, having learned them by ear, and he was actually elaborating on them. That's at six. By 12, he was giving professional recitals, which were the talk of the town. At that point, his mother took him to Paris to continue his musical education under the most prominent uh, musician, actually the most prominent uh, pianist, certainly, of the 19th century, Franz Liszt. Franz Liszt took on Hermann Cohen as his protege, as his disciple, took him under his wing, and was not only his uh, piano teacher, but actually was his mentor in life as well. And Franz Liszt was quite depraved and very self-indulgent. And and uh, he had a tremendous amount of money because of uh, it's like a, being a rock star, you know, a, a star musician today. He made a fortune from his um, music and he enjoyed gambling and he enjoyed women and scandalous behavior and horse racing and so forth. And Herman Cohen being an adolescent and a teenager, uh, and Franz Liszt, of course, being his idol and model, uh, followed down that path and became very depraved himself. Uh, By the time he was a a late teenager, he was playing solo, sold-out piano concerts in all of the capitals of Europe, you know, in Berlin and Hamburg and London and Paris and so forth. Um, He was the talk of the town everywhere he went, he was entertained by kings and princes. He was, um, you know, gold was thrown at him. Women were thrown at him. Uh, I was surprised to learn they were groupies in those days, but they were actually groupies in those days. And he had some rather dramatic adventures with with uh, women that he probably would have been better off staying away from. And uh, he became very depraved and very selfish. And he later said he would gamble in a single night more money than most men earned in a lifetime. And um, anyway, so it was in that state that the decisive moment of Herman's conversion came. At the age of 26, by then he was pretty pretty depraved, and um, he had actually burned out most of his friendships through his selfishness and self-centeredness. Again, you can think of a a rock star, think of a Mick Jagger or something, 
And uh, that's the kind of behavior and that's the kind of selfishness and self-indulgence that Herman Cohen was able to in- indulge in because basically being a, uh, a pianist, a star pianist in those days was like being a star rock guitarist today or something. Anyway, the decisive moment in his conversion came when, at the age of 26, he was asked to fill in directing the choir at a church service. What he didn't know was that that church service was a Sunday afternoon benediction service. He was only doing it because the choir director was a friend of his. He was a prince, and he was ill, and he could not fulfill his duties. So he asked his friend Herman Cohen to fill in for him, and doing favors for princes is a prudent thing to do. So Herman filled in for him. And um, uh, I will then turn to his words. I agreed and went to take my place to conducting the choir purely from my interest in music and a desire to do the job well. During the ceremony, nothing affected me much. But at the moment of benediction, I felt something deep within me as though I had found myself. It was like the prodigal son facing himself. I felt a great weight descend on my whole body, forcing me to bow and even kneel to the ground despite myself and prostrate myself. The benediction is when the Blessed Sacrament is elevated in the monstrance in a service of um, adoration and reverence and praise of the Blessed Sacrament, which is another way of saying of Jesus. Um, going back to um, Herman Cohen. Uh, he returned the following Friday. When I returned the following Friday, the same thing happened. And at that point, he thought of becoming a Catholic. Um, from that point on, he thought of nothing but becoming a Catholic. Um, he spent his time locked in his room, uh, reading the breviary and praying. And then the decisive event happened a few weeks later. I will go, I will turn again to his own words. The following Sunday, I went to Mass. Everything affected me, the hymns and prayers and God's invisible presence. I was very moved and felt the Lord was touching me. When the priest raised the host, my tears began to flow. It was a consoling and unforgettable moment. I remembered having cried as a child but I certainly never experienced tears like these. And while the tears flowed, a deep sorrow for my past life welled up. Spontaneously, as if by intuition, I began to make a general confession of God, to God, of all the enormous sins committed since my childhood. I saw them there, piled up before me by the thousands, hideous, repulsive, and yet I also felt an unfamiliar calm which spread its balm on my soul, that the God of mercy would forgive me these, that he would take pity on my sincere contrition, on my bitter sorrow. Yes, I felt that he would give me grace, and that he would accept in expiation my firm resolution to love him above all else, and to convert to him from then on. When I left the church, I was already a Christian in my heart. He immediately began a serious course of study to prepare for his baptism, which came just three weeks later. And um, I will, uh, as soon as we come back from the break, I will go to, no, I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll um, read the description of his baptism, the experience of his baptism before the break. Then I'll go to a short musical break 
And when we come back from the break, if there are any calls, I'll take the calls. Or else I'll just continue talking about Herman Cohen. So just three weeks later, he was baptized. I'll read his description. On Saturday, August 28th at 3 o'clock, the chapel of Our Lady of Zion was brightly lit by candles and the altar adorned with fresh flowers. The chapel bells were ringing, there was a full congregation, and the choir consisted of young girls wearing white veils singing beautifully and accompanied by the organ. The priest asked, Do you wish to be baptized? Yes, I do wish it. I was hardly aware of the priest with the holy water shell in his hand. The Lord had promised to possess me at this moment. The priest was pouring the holy water with triple gesture over my forehead and proclaimed solemnly that he baptized me in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. At that moment I was deeply moved and I can only describe it like an electric shock. God permitted that I, miserable worm of earth that I am, was allowed, by a grace which I cannot name, to see for an instant something I scarcely dare recall. My eyes were closed, but I had an inner vision as though the Holy Spirit took me by the hand and revealed to my gaze, wrapped in ecstasy, that which no finite being can ever understand, the infinite. Yes, I saw a great and unlimited bright space without end, or rather not space, for my gaze soared, plunging always further, further, meeting no obstacle. A gentle warmth penetrated me, and in spite of the brilliant light which radiated from all sides, my gaze never tired of plunging into the raised light, for deep within there was an even brighter light, and there stood a glorious throne, and seated on the throne was our Lord Jesus Christ, beautiful with eternal youth, with his beloved mother on his right, and around his feet a host of saints clothed in the brightest colors of the rainbow. The saints were prostrate at the foot of the throne in adoration, and yet at the same time they looked towards me and smiled kindly. Heaven and its inhabitants seemed to rejoice at my baptism, as though the poor soul of a redeemed sinner weighed in the balance of eternity. Yes, I have seen the abode of the church triumphant. Well, there is Herman Cohen's account of his baptism. There is his account of the baptism. Anyway, that is, of course, what we mean. That's what we mean to Jesus. That's what we mean to the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's what baptism means. That's what Jesus brought us. But anyway, rather than babble, I will go to the um, musical break that I have queued up. It is the Panis Lingua, the famous hymn, I believe, written by St. Thomas Aquinas to the Blessed Sacrament, to the Eucharist. And um, coming out, coming back from the hymn, after the hymn, after the musical break, I will come back. And if any calls have come in, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. I will take the calls. And if not, I will um, continue with Herman Cohen. But um, with that, let us go to the short musical break. Angelingua Gloriosi 
Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that. And that was, um, whoops, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, that was a um, uh, chant choir from a religious community called Harpa Dei. And they're, um, they have a YouTube channel. So if you like that music, you might want to look them up on YouTube. It's Harpa, H-A-R-P-A, Dei. D 
H-D-E-I, which is Latin for the harp of God. And they have, um, pro- I'm tempted to say hundreds of beautiful chanted hymns and prayers um, on their YouTube channel. And of course, it's all free. So, I, um, it looks like no calls came in. So, I will go back to Herman Cohen. But you are um, welcome to call, of course. So, when I left you, Herman Cohen had just been baptized, seeing Jesus and Mary and the heavenly host, uh, rejoicing at his baptism, in fact, as though, as he said, the poor soul of a redeemed sinner weighed in the balance of eternity. And it does. Our souls weigh in the balance of eternity. Everyone, you know, every passed out druggie on the street that we pass by on the sidewalk, poor soul weighs in the balance of eternity. And uh, just think of how happy Jesus would be if we were able to bring that person to him. Anyway, back to the um, chapter about Herman Cohen from Honey from the Rock. The following year, 1849, Herman joined the Carmelite... Oh, no, excuse me. Um, We're still in 1848. The Blessed Sacrament, which initially drew Herman Cohen into the church, remained the center of his spirituality throughout his life. In 1848, just a year after his initial conversion experience, Herman started the Association of Nocturnal Adorers, a group of men dedicated to adoring our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament throughout the night. Later, he would take a private vow never to preach without mentioning the Eucharist, and in his extremely active apostolic life traveling throughout Europe, wherever he went, he would establish a cell of nocturnal adoration. The following year, 1849, Herman joined the Carmelite Order, attracted to it in part because it traced its roots to the Jewish Old Testament prophet Elijah. As he wrote his mother, the religious order I have entered originated among the Jews 930 years before Jesus Christ. The prophet Elijah of the Old Testament founded it on Mount Carmel in Palestine. It is an order of real Jews of children of the prophets who waited for the Messiah and who believed in him when he came. They have survived to our time, living in the same manner, with the same bodily deprivations and the same spiritual joys that were there about 2,800 years ago. They still bear today the name of the Order of Mount Carmel. So you see, he saw the continuity not only of Judaism into the Catholic Church, but he saw the continuity of the Carmelites from Judaism into the Catholic Church. Uh, When he became a religious, he took the name Brother Augustine Marie of the Most Blessed Sacrament. As As I said, the Eucharist was always, until his death, the center, the center of his, um, spiritual life, the center of his apostolate. Anyway, um, I better cut to the chase here. So um, then when he became a Carmelite, he spent uh, pretty much the rest of his life he uh, traveling around Europe. He would go to the capitals where he was famous as a pianist, where he had performed, and he would they would put up posters announcing a free organ recital in a church by the famous Herman Cohen. 
And the church would be filled with people who came for the organ recital, and he would play the organ, and then he would preach. And he got hundreds, perhaps thousands of conversions. Oh, I see we have a caller. So um, let me interrupt myself and take the call. Um, are you there, Christy? Yes, I'm here. I kind of feel obviously for interrupting uh, since I didn't get to come in through the break. But thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, did you have a question or a comment? I did have a question, uh, kind of off-topic, not about Herman Cohen, uh, although I am enjoying that story. I love his story. Uh, but it's more to see if you can help me with um, a discussion I was having with someone recently where uh, they were saying that Pope Pius Twelfth was um, didn't do much for the Jews during the Holocaust, that he was known as Hitler's Pope and all that kind of stuff. And that's, I mean, I do see that on the Internet, but I think I've only seen that kind of narrative more recently because before I thought it was pretty well known that he did do a lot for the Jews during the Holocaust. Um, he just couldn't publicly, openly, you know, um, I guess condemn Hitler because that would have brought more horror upon either Jews or Italians or well, um, I, he couldn't really publicly. Think I mean, that. I'm tempted to say, you know, you know, you have 30 hours. It's, um, you know, it's a complicated topic. There have been, you know, at least dozens of books written on it. But the outline that you paint um, is, I think, fundamentally accurate that that is that um let's see how to put it on a on a personal basis he did a tremendous amount to help the jews he had all the monasteries and and convents which were strictly cloistered in rome thrown open to hide jews he had jews um actually hidden in the in the uh, swiss guard um quarters in the vatican Supposedly, the staircase, every stair was a bed for another Jew. Um, he was very sympathetic to the Jewish community in Rome. And he, when they had to come up with gold as a ransom to keep from being deported, he told the chief rabbi that if they could not come up with enough gold themselves, the Vatican would make up the difference. So on that level, he did a tremendous amount. And a, uh, a later Jewish... Israeli cabinet member after the war, Pincus Lapita, estimated that Pope Pius XII was responsible uh, for saving the lives of 860,000, I think was the number, Jews. However, however, um, it's also true that he was very concerned with protecting the church under the Third Reich. And um, until the United States entered the war, which was very late in the war, the entire world expected all of Europe to be under the Third Reich for decades, you know, if not centuries. It looked like Hitler was unstoppable. And uh, the Third Reich made, basically was always holding that over Pius XII's head, basically saying, from one day to the next, we can suppress the church in what is going to be essentially the entire Western world. Um, and uh, so Pius XII was careful there was a line there where he was very concerned with protecting the availability of the sacraments uh, for Catholics, 
you know, for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years, even if Germany won the war. And I don't think that that um, reflects poorly on him, right? That was his job. So does that make sense? Right, I wouldn't think so. It, it does. And, and that's what my understanding was, but it seems that at least the few people that I do speak to about it, you know, he has this, I guess, reputation of being Hitler's Pope and not doing anything for the Jews. And Well, he, he did, did not, he did I not. figured you would be able to confirm it. He did not um, come out loudly as the moral authority of Christendom condemning Hitler and the Nazis for what they were doing. And the Jewish community wanted him to do that and wished he, you know what I mean? In other words, that is what they were hoping he would do, and that's what they wish he had done. And he didn't do that. And he didn't do that in part because um, he was looking towards a future. Well, first of all, he was looking towards his job, which was protecting the sacraments and protecting the freedom of the Catholic Church to operate. And he was also... um, uh, looking at a future in, I mean, we know that 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 the Third Reich, you know, failed after a couple of years. But until the United, if the United States had not entered the war, um, they probably would have dominated Europe, you know, for decades and decades and decades. Uh, so anyway, so it is true that he did not stand on the rooftops condemning Hitler and Nazism. Um, on moral grounds, which in a way, you know, would have been attractive, but it was, a, I think, a, a very reasonable prudential judgment not to do that. Um, so uh, anyway, I, I'll, I'll stop there. I have done some shows on it, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I haven't seen it. I'll, yeah, I'll um, there's a, thank you. This is really uh, there's a, there's a, it was a few years ago. Um, I did a, two shows on um uh it's not going to be real easy to find out what where they were i have go to my if you go to my i'm saying this because it's not just you if other people are listening i have an archive of my own radio maria shows on my website um my uh my website is salvationisfromthejews.com you can find the archive of radio maria shows and i have i have titles of the shows there that you can search so if you just go to that page and if you look for hitler i'd say look for hitler you'll probably find the shows where i i talk about um or look for pies the 12th or something i don't know you'll see the shows where i talked about it yeah I, I, yeah i'm sure i can find it thank you so much i'll let you get back to the sure. show okay well that was an interesting topic <laughs> but uh i i can't uh yield to the temptation to talk about it, to give it justice, so to speak. So I will simply, um, because I only have really a few minutes, let me, okay, okay. Herman Cohen would go to all the capitals of Europe, he would um, give these free organ recitals in churches, and he would preach, he would get hundreds of converts, thousands of converts in total. Um, He also, by the way, reestablished the uh, Carmelite order in England, there had been no Carmelite monasteries left after the Reformation, and I think he established nine Carmelite monasteries in England. But mostly, he went around to the European capitals preaching, and um, as I said, he gave, made a personal vow never to preach without extolling the Eucharist. And I will read you, I think I'll probably spend the rest of the show simply reading 
some passages that he wrote extolling the Blessed Sacrament, since tomorrow is Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. So, um, um, let me... uh, let me just uh, skip forward. Okay, here's a beautiful passage from a sermon he gave. Oh, Jesus, my love, I should like to kindle in the hearts of my former friends the fire that burns in me. I should like to show them the happiness you give to me. If you no longer see me trying my utmost for applause and empty respect, it is because I have found my renown in the Eucharist. If you no longer see me wasting my resources in casinos or chasing riches, it is because I have found wealth and inexhaustible treasure in the cup of love sealed in the Eucharist. If I no longer come and drown my worries in your noisy parties, it is because I am nourished at the wedding feast with the angels of heaven. It is because I have found true joy. Yes, I have found it. What I really love, it is mine and no one can take it from me. Now that my hearts have seen and my hands have touched and my heart has beaten on the heart of God, I can only be sorry for your blindness in pursuing pleasures that are unable to fill your hearts. So come to this heavenly feast which has been prepared by eternal wisdom. Come, draw near. Abandon your baubles and empty dreams. Cast off the rags that cover you. Ask Jesus for the shining robe of pardon And then with a new heart, with a pure heart, quench your thirst at the limpid fountain of his love. Taste and see the sweetness of the Lord. Then again, the Holy Eucharist is the only thanksgiving offering worthy of God. God ordered the Israelites to keep a container filled with manna in the tabernacle in memory of the gifts he showered on them when he fed them in the desert. Manna has always been regarded as an image of the Holy Eucharist. But the name of the true manna, the lovely name Eucharist, expresses in one word all the treasures of God's goodness, literally in Greek thanksgiving. Adorable Sacrament, blessed spring from which my dry lips can drink the first fruits of eternal life, My heart is filled with joy. I need to bless you and sing your praises in songs of joy and thanksgiving. It was hidden in the Eucharist that you revealed the truth to me. And the first mystery you revealed was that of your real presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Even then, although I was still a Jew, I wished to present myself at the Holy Table and receive you. I was anxious for baptism in order to be united to you. And when at last I could receive the heavenly banquet, I found there the strength I needed, and I was changed. It became my protection and treasure. I longed to drink that living water, and I hungered for the bread of angels. I am now obliged to sing joyful hymns to you, because it was your sacrament which did all this, which turned me from what was harmful to a frugal life, from an extravagant life to one of a humbler kind. O Jesus, present in the Eucharist, in the desert of this life you appear to me one day. You reveal to me your light, your greatness, and your beauty. You drew me strongly to yourself and stirred in my spirit a hunger for the bread of life and a thirst in my heart for your precious blood.
O Jesus, my love, I dare say, if faith did not teach me that to contemplate you in heaven is a still greater joy, I would not believe that a greater happiness could exist than that which I experienced loving you in the Eucharist and receiving you in my poor heart, made so rich by you. I would like to live totally by the Eucharist. May it be the source of your thoughts, feelings, words, and deeds. May it be the light that guides you, your inspiration, your model, and your constant preoccupation. As Magdalene spread tears and poured perfume over the feet of Jesus, may you never tire of offering your prayers, aspirations, and gifts before the tabernacle. I wish the Eucharist to be for you a fire of love, a burning fire, into which you can throw yourself so as to emerge as a flame with love and generosity. May the altar where Jesus sacrifices himself also receive your sacrifices, so that with him you may become a victim of love, whose odor of sweetness rises before the throne of the Eternal. At times, whether I wish to or not, I have to stop whatever I am doing and go before the Blessed Sacrament on my knees and abandon myself to God. It is impossible to resist the torrents of delight that fall on me or the gentle fire that penetrates my heart. I sometimes remain there for hours in keen delight, and the hours pass by like minutes. Mary brought me to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist ravished my heart with a delight so ravishing that I no longer wish to live but for Jesus and Mary. Well, this is my least favorite moment of the, day, of the week, when I have to stop, because I've come to the end of our hour together. Um, there's a lot more in the life and the writings of Herman Cohen that I'd like to have the time to talk about, but uh, I don't right now. I've been reading from my book, Honey from the Rock, 16 Jews Find the Sweetness of Christ. It's from, published by Ignatius Press. It's widely available. Um, it's easy to find on Amazon and so forth. So if you wish for the whole Megillah, if any Jews or New Yorkers are listening, you might know what the whole Megillah is, then um, I, you can find it in Honey from the Rock. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Shoman. And um, we have been talking about the Most Blessed Sacrament, both when Jesus introduced it in John chapter 6 in the Bread of Life Discourse, and then also through the reflections of Father Herman Cohen, who otherwise known as Father Augustine Marie of the Most Blessed Sacrament, OCD. So with that, it's time to say goodbye. I'm going to go out with the music that I played during the break, the Panis Angelicum, and which is a, a paean of praise to the Blessed Sacrament. And um, that's it for today. Please join me again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. This is Roy Shoman saying bye for now. Angelingua gloriosi, corporis misterium, sanguinisque preziosi, quem mundi preziosi.
Fructus ventris generosi, rexe furit Sim. 